Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We're a group of PhD students studying computational neuroscience. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. I'm Connor. And I'm Nancy. Nancy is our special guest today because our topic is neural oscillations, uh, and that is something that she studies and none of the rest of us do. So she's the resident expert for today. Um, So I guess we should start by explaining what we mean by neural oscillations and I think it's a term that people are probably familiar with in some way, like even just in natural language, people talk about brain waves and that kind of thing. So there's probably a lot of ideas out there about what neural oscillations are. So we should start by kind of laying out what uh, scientists in the field study when they study neural oscillations. So Nancy, maybe you could get us started with that and describe those and then also how you, how you measure oscillations. Mm-hmm. So besides spikes that are generated by neurons, there's a lot of other electrical changes in the brain, and they sometimes happen in rhythms, and that's why we call them oscillations. And we can simply record them by putting an electrode anywhere inside the brain. Even you can record them in your skull because they're that powerful, and you can listen to them. It's like the echoes, pretty much. So that's what we know. Where we refer to as oscillations or neural oscillations. And so what do we know about how these things are generated? Um, so they're a mixture of spikes and subthreshold activity, like what we refer to as excitatory postsynaptic responses or inhibitory postsynaptic responses, and also just ongoing currents that are occurring constantly. So what we will call um, not synaptic activity, extrasynaptic activity. Yeah, so neurons fire spikes, which are these, you know, kind of sharp increases in membrane potential that are that kind of allow them to communicate via synapses with other neurons. The way that those spikes are generated is by some activity in, you know, flowing currents, basically literally ions flow across the membrane. So there's a whole lot of currents going on all the time in the brain across the membranes of cells. And then so Nancy referred to, you know, subthreshold activity. That's like the changes in the membrane voltage, so the voltage across the body of the cell that are below the spiking threshold, so changes that happen when there is no spiking occurring. Right, and maybe it's worth mentioning that neuroscientists care a lot about spikes and we give it like very strong meaning because when an action potential occurred, you have the release of neurotransmitters. And that's what we call the message. You know, the neurotransmitter is then going to affect your ne- the neuron sitting next to it. Now, with this, post- with this um, sub-threshold activity, we don't really know what happens. There's no release of neurotransmitters, per se. And people might think of oscillations that they record extracellularly as being maybe the, the sum over the sub-threshold activity of many neurons. Exactly. Kind of an- ill-defined, possibly, number of neurons. Right. And so, as Nancy said, you can measure these oscillations by sticking an electrode in the brain, and that signal is usually called the local field potential, if you're actually sticking an electrode inside of the brain and capturing something that's happening across maybe hundreds of neurons. Um, And then if you're recording from the skull, those oscillations, when you measure that, is usually called an EEG. And there's some intermediate-sized recordings where people put grids of surface electrodes on on the surface of the brain, touching the brain inside the skull, 
but not penetrating into the brain. And this is generally known as like ECOG. So I think the idea of an oscillation, right, in someone's mind, if you think of like something oscillating, you would expect that if you say a, a, a quantity is oscillating, if you plot that quantity as a function of time, you would literally see something going up and down and up and down, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is not exactly what this is not what people are often talking about when they talk about like oscillations in neural signals, right? Because you know there are examples where that's really true, but oftentimes it's not the case that if you just looked at the Recorded, signal that's recorded yeah. on the electrode that you would actually see an obvious oscillation. Right. They're out there by eye. Right, that's true. And usually they're evoked by something. I mean, if you're recording in a behaving animal, if you're in the hippocampus, for example, the animal starts moving and locomotion triggers is very, very defined oscillatory activity. Same in the cortex as well. But if sometimes just at baseline, there's no oscillating activity. So most of the time it's evoked, I would say. So if you can't see it by eye, then how do we actually measure these things? Right, so maybe something worth mentioning is that in the local field potential, there's actually many frequencies over um, on top of each other, and we use mathematical methods to extract different frequencies and filter them, if you may. So you, what you're effectively getting is the, the power of different frequency components, like how much like, right. low-frequency component is there in, in this local field potential, or how much of a high-frequency component of this. And neuroscientists have named these different bands of frequencies different things so like what are some of the dominant so one of the very popular ones are theta which is low frequencies from 4 to 12 hertz that means 4 to 12 cycles in a second hertz and another popular one is gamma which is really anything higher than 30 hertz cool yeah and it's true we measure specifically like the amplitude of that signal that is going up and down and the idea is that in different behavioral states those amplitudes of the given frequencies are changing, so perhaps there's a meaning of these oscillations. So I think historically kind of the study of oscillations came when they realized that during sleep there were slow oscillations that you could measure with EEG, um, and then during wakefulness there are it's considered not really oscillating. Um, and uh, during epilepsy, epileptic seizures, there's huge oscillations, so... That was kind of the initial sense that you could correlate, oh, when there's oscillations, you're kind of not processing information or in the not alert state, and when there's not oscillations, maybe you are. But then, obviously, think people have gone further and looked at uh, these oscillations inside the brain and found kind of more detailed patterns that they try to correlate with behavior. At this point, maybe having talked a little bit about this as background, we could have Nancy describe a little bit of how she uses these tools in her research. Okay. So one of the main motivators for us to use what we call local field potentials is that they can easily be translated to human research because, as Grace mentioned, you, you can record these oscillations from the scold and they're known as EEGs. So the idea is that we want to use local field potentials as markers of functional connectivity. And by that we mean that two brain regions are engaged in a given behavioral state. In our case, the behavior I care about is anxiety or innate fears. So an animal is naturally afraid of specific stimuli because of evolution. In our case, we use these maces that have very bright spaces that rodents dislike. So we've 
um, previously reported that the ventral hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex become synchronized, which means that the oscillations from the ventral hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex look more similar to each other in amplitude and in frequency. So then we are essentially saying these two brain regions are functionally connected. And so essentially we're using the local field potential more as a way to ask, are these two brain regions engaged together, yes or no? It's easier than just recording spikes because recording a lot of spikes in multiple brain regions is very, very challenging. And even if you do so, you're probably assaying less than 1% of the neurons in that brain region. So the local field potential offers you this summation of synaptic activity that can get around the limitations of recording single units, as we know them, referring to neurons. So when, when you record these signals, you kind of think of it as some kind of heuristic or, or aggregate block bulk mm-hmm. signal for like a whole ROI, a region of interest exactly. in the brain. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and how do you think about what kinds of statements you could make about the sort of causal interactions, just kind of at a high level? I mean, do you, what, kind of, what kind of statements do you think it's possible to make about the interaction between these brain regions, given these recordings? How, how strong of a statement would you feel comfortable personally endorsing based on this kind of science? Well, we like, it's, it's similar to what fMRI people do. You look at the change. So you're recording some baseline condition and then you're recording your um, behavior of interest. At least that's how we do it. The problem is that these oscillations are occurring all over the brain. You do have volume conduction happening, which means that the signal I recording the ventral hippocampus could partially uh, be getting some noise from uh, regions around it. So what we are comfortably talking about is changes. So we can see that the amplitude increases from the baseline condition to when this stimulus is presented, for example. So I, yeah, I don't want to push you too much. Mm-hmm. I just want to get a clarification. of right? So in, in your mind... What are the what are the kind of how strong of a statement can you make though from this? Like when you would would you say like what one brain region is causing or transferring information to another brain region, or would you say that's beyond the scope of what I can probe with? That's difference? definitely beyond the scope, but we can talk about how much a signal in one brain region is influencing the other. Causing is definitely there's no way. I mean, the brain is completely interconnected. So what would be the distinction to you there? What what, what do you what do you mean by influencing? And, and uh, influencing means that, uh, let's say in my case, the prefrontal cortex is the region that receives projection from the hippocampus. And um, the prefrontal cortex seems, seems to follow this, the oscillation from the ventral hippocampus. And that doesn't mean that the uh, ventral hippocampus is causing the oscillation in the prefrontal cortex, but it's influencing. So partially, some of that signal in the PFC is due to the signal in the hippocampus. That's as much as we would say. Is it possible to ever, I mean, this kind of standard, right, where you would want to manipulate the right. thing that you think causes something else? So that's exactly what my PhD project is about. So now that we have genetics, which is a way to silence or excite given parts of the brain with very precise temporal and spatial resolution, the idea is that we've previously reported that these two brain regions become, their oscillations become more similar to each other when the animal is anxious, but we don't really know if that has any meaning. So we thought, well, let's silence, let's control, let's manipulate this projection and see if if that uh, coordinated activity between the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex decreases. 
you will expect that it should, right? Because if your technique is working, you're silencing that projection. I mean that those neurons that project to the prefrontal cortex. And and we do see that the changes in behavior and the changes in synchrony go together, suggesting that at least it wasn't a byproduct of something else that was happening during the behavior. Um, and when you manipulate and you silence that, that connection, you do see decreased face locking, which means like this, the neurons in the PFC are not as rhythmically sync to the hippocampus. But you're also changing firing rates and spiking. Right. So that's interesting is like overall firing rate doesn't change, but evoke firing rate changes. So if I look at firing rate in a specific task of the, of the behavior, it does change in a specific part part of the task but overall it doesn't so it's maybe we're what we're thinking is we're disorganizing the spikes like maybe the spikes that would occur in a given part are occurring in another part because the total amount of spikes is not changing i mean if you think about it i'm only decreasing one of the many inputs and i'm recording cells that could be receiving hippocampal input or not so in vivo it's not the best assessment it's possible i'm sure there's cells that are significantly decreasing firing rate but um, maybe in vitro you could definitely ask the question, can I control for the amount of spikes within one cell and still disorganize this face, uh, the, the spike into the LFP? Just a tiny brief aside, uh, terminology, in vivo versus in vitro. In vivo is doing experiments in living animals. Um, in vitro is doing experiments with tissue that might be alive but in like a dish separated from the living animal. So if you do something in vitro, is there a strong LFP or can you only study LFP in vivo? No, you, you get strong LFP, definitely. Uh, now, the LFP is not as... I'm not an expert in in vitro, so I believe that the LFP is not as strong in terms of the oscillation. The rhythmic activity is not very strong, so people usually induce it pharmacologically. Okay, so maybe we can move on to the paper and kind of get a sense of what tools people generally think uh, they can use with respect to oscillations and what kind of science can be done. And then we can return to this and kind of discuss more broadly to the extent to which we endorse or have, have qualms with, with some of these usages. Right, so we read uh, a paper by Bujaki and Schomburg, who are researchers at NYU. Um, it's called, What Does Gamma Coherence Tell Us About Interregional Neural Communication? So uh, this paper is kind of based in an idea that people have that uh, if you have coherence between two areas, that is, you have two areas that are oscillating the same way, that that can facilitate communication between those areas. And this paper just goes into perhaps some of the things that people should keep in mind when they're doing those kinds of studies, because sometimes it can be difficult to study oscillations, as we've talked about, it's sometimes not clear what exactly you're studying when you're studying oscillations. And if you want to say something really strongly, you need to know exactly what you're measuring and, and what can be said with that kind of signal. So can I ask a question that's kind of stupid? If you have some signal, say, the voltage recorded from the end of an electrode in the brain somewhere, you can do like a Fourier transform mm-hmm. of it. So the Fourier transform splits the signal up into a bunch of sine waves that have different frequencies. And you can kind of see how much of the signal is contained at all the different frequencies, up to some maximum frequency. Um, so to me, like being a bit mathematical about it, 
I wouldn't feel comfortable looking at a signal and calling it oscillatory unless there was like some kind of band pass peak in the Fourier spectrum somewhere. Or at least if I could like do a local Fourier transform and find strong peaks in, in you know, mm-hmm. that might say change over time in their amplitude. So. And this would mean that by eye, when you look at the signal, when you look at the power time, spectrum, well, no, no, so this would mean that by eye, when you look at the signal, you would see catch it oscillatory activity by eye, depending on like you know, you, you could be able to you might talk about is there a peak or not that's band pass in some statistical way, you could test the significance of that. It might be embedded in a lot of noise. It might be hard to see it clearly by eye. But yeah, the idea is taking it for granted just from the power spectrum itself. Like if you have like some kind of you know power spectrum that decays like one over the frequency, one over f, or then there's nothing or whatever. Then it's kind of hard. You know, mm-hmm. you, we know that those kinds of spectra can arise from various kinds of noise processes. So it's like you know, my question is basically about the question is about because I actually don't know the answer to this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these different oscillations people talk about. I know that the theta oscillation in the hippocampus is is like you look at the you, you see look a at peak. that you see a big peak. It's really right. clear. So it's like that exists right. in so, an obvious way. Right. And so, many of these mm-hmm. exist in like an obvious way. Yeah, yeah. So people that do this correctly, they study an oscillation that that is perceived as a peak in a power spectrum. Otherwise, otherwise, there's nothing, right? Because for mathematical reasons that I do not understand. If you take noise, like if I generate an LFP that's like just simply white noise and you do a power spectrum on that and there's nothing really oscillating um, on it, there's nothing rhythmic to it, you'll see a power spectrum. You know, you can generate, you can look at the frequency components on anything and it'll look like 1 over F. So it'll look like this exponentially decaying So, so, you, so just, yeah, for, for sort of background context, right, if you generate... Uh, uh, just a random noise signal uh, and and look at the spectral content of that, depending on the way you generated that random noise, you'll expect to see a different frequency spectrum, uh, power as a function of frequency, and there'd be different amounts of those frequ- the different frequencies. But you'll get some random but you'll have Yeah, so white, when you generate something that looks like white noise, so like random, at each time you have like a random value drawn from some distribution, that tends to mean statistically that there there is frequency content at all frequencies right that this is the this is the meaning of white noise is that there's there's yes, some uh, all over there's the some place, power right? at all the frequencies. and it's uniformly it's yeah it's, it's often considered right? yeah, yeah it's often considered to be strictly uniform though sometimes there are slight variants on that mm-hmm. people still yeah call you typically white noise means that there is actually power fre- at all frequencies. It's, it means there's power at all frequencies Anyway, so if you take a randomly a, a, a signal that you make up that's not recorded from the brain, you can you can get amplitude signal uh, values like as if there were oscillations on it because the Fourier transformation will look for frequent. Essentially, it will look for the different frequencies even if you cannot see them by eye. So the question is, how do you determine that the thing you recorded from a brain actually is a significant oscillation. Right, so it should be a peak that looks bigger than 1 over f, which is what you will get with this random signal. Now, I'm not sure if there's specific statistics that people use, but the way that people do it is that they're recording, they see this particular peak in, let's say, I don't know, between 6 and 9 hertz in a specific behavior, and then they ask questions about does this have a meaning? Is it 
somehow link to the animal's behavior on a given thing? And can I manipulate the animal's behavior and will that thing change? So it's more like you go, you, it's like blindly you record and you see what oscillations you see in this paradigm rather than just not checking if you actually, if it actually exists. Because at the beginning, people thought that this was very uniform across the brain, but it's brain region dependent and behavior dependent. So I think it's actually a slightly tricky issue, right? Because, for example, when you then talk about coherence between signals, so there's probably like a few different definitions people use, but let's just say we have two signals, one neuron, one LFP recording one brain area and LFP recording another brain area. And suppose they're kind of like, suppose the spectrum, the spectra of these two signals are like basically flat. They have frequency everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Now suppose we filter each of them at some, in some frequency band. We get, we extract the, say, 50 to 55 hertz components of both of those, right? You could then ask questions about, is there meaningful relationships just between the frequency, the, the, those two filtered signals? You could ask, like, are they always in phase? Is mm -hmm. one always slightly preceding another? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these ideas that we'll get to about coherence, communication, you know, if they're plausible, that kind of scenario, they could still exist. But then, by what, in terms of what we've just been talking about, you might still look at each signal and say, it doesn't itself have some strong gamma oscillation, right? But it could be that there's like, I mean, I don't know how this would arise, but like, mm -hmm. it could be that there are like, at certain frequencies, the signals are related and at other frequencies they're not. So oh, absolutely. These things kind of all are possible. And I think it's not like totally clear what's interesting and what's relevant as well. Yeah, two signals could still be influencing each other even if they're not ref their LFPs are not reflecting the same frequency ranges or the same oscillation and the same frequency. But again, for context, there is a like a concrete mathematical definition of coherence yes. used by signal processing people, mm -hmm. which is effectively like the it's a cross spec cross power spectrum that's normalized by the individual power spectrum. Mm -hmm. So it's related to the cross correlation function. Mm -hmm. So kind of if you would expect to see that kind of and it's as a function of frequency. So basically, it's it's at each frequency how strong is the the, the how strong are two signals cross correlated. Yeah. But they don't need to each be oscillating, basically, is my point, for you to have... You'll get all the frequencies just because that's... Well, so if, if, if within a given frequency band, the, the signals are not varying together, then you won't expect to see something. Yeah. So okay. being in phase and having amplitude that kind of covers together is going to... What I'm saying is that two, func like two signals could have coherence in some frequency band without each of them actually looking oscillatory. I don't know, to me that's actually kind of, that kind of makes this whole discussion weird, I think. I th I almost it doesn't seem like it's related to neural oscillations. It's not, yeah, I feel like the these, two, these two phenomena are separate. Like, it's basically, see. coherence within frequency bands seems to me, at least a priori, potentially, completely independent of whether or not signals are oscillating. Or at least oscillating in any way that we would consider really That you would see up and down. Of, like, a, like a peak in the Fourier <laughs> yeah. spectrum thing. You yeah. don't have to... Yeah. Yeah, so in that sense, it's almost a misnomer to call this whole category of thinking like the study of neural oscillations. Yeah, I think there's at least two things that are being studied. Coherence in different frequency bands, like coherence between signals as a function of frequency band versus the existence of peaks in Fourier spectra, spectra of individual signals. You know, And those are often kind of clumped together, in, I mean, in the title of this thing. I mean, maybe not in the title, actually, but, you know, what does gamma coherence, blah, 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 
and then the first two words of the abstract are neural oscillations. I don't know. To me, it seems like it's not obvious from the beginning that those are related necessarily. I mean, you need the notion of oscillations to have a frequency, like to talk about frequency. Well, so that, that's maybe the that's point. Not, yeah. That's not really true. So, right? so if you have if you have general time series. You're going, you could you can always decompose those into their spectral sure, sure, sure. So they, they don't need to be oscillating time series for you right. to be able to look at things like coherence. Yeah. If two signals are at all cross-correlated, then at some uh, frequency band, you should expect to see some coherence. Yeah, you could do a Fourier transformation on a <clears throat> spike train, and you'll get a power spectrum from that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that's like related to what you were saying earlier, Nancy, like that. Any signal can be decomposed into its Fourier spectrum. You know, Fourier spectrum is sine waves, right? Um, which are all oscillating themselves, but like the whole sum thing doesn't have to contain something that we, that we would really as, perceive as oscillatory. Yeah. But it has then, frequency components anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. this is just sort of a definitional thing. <coughs> all time series have frequency components. So maybe we can return to the paper. So what's the point of this paper, kind of succinctly? Does it, would anyone care to summarize? I mean, I feel like it's just kind of telling people to be cautious um, because there's these potential sources of uh, like contamination or just the chance to have unclear thinking about how to study gamma oscillations. So I, I think that like in some way you could view this as, a, as kind of a, a warning slash review of, of the ways to properly think about this. And I think that's good. There's a, there's a, to me, there's an agenda to it, which is to promote the notion that LFP, specifically gamma rhythms, can be used, uh, and, and this is kind of a quote, like as an indirect way of gaining insights into neural communication across brain regions, right? And that's related to the title. You but say indirect because it's not spikes? I say indirect because they said indirect, oh, but, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, it's not just like, oh, if you have spikes, you know that things are communicating. Anytime you just record two signals and they're kind of doing the same thing, you can't just assert that they're definitely influencing each other. Yeah. There's always the possibility that they're both being influenced by a third thing and that kind of stuff. But so they, they kind of start with, near the beginning, a thought experiment for, for an experiment that people have actually done. And it's the notion that you could uh, try to look at one network and how it communicates with another network, where from the first network, you record from its output. You record spikes from network A. And network B, you record LFP from near the dendrites, where the spikes would be received by the first network. And so what you would expect to find, if there's some sort of causal connection, is some sort of relationship between the LFP in that second region with the spiking activity in that first region. And they kind of use this as the, the jumping point, as, as how this is generally like a, a reasonable approach, and looking at, at LFP can be a reasonable thing to do. And, and I, I agree with that, and I think that this is kind of a really lucid way of thinking about uh, productive benefits of LFP. But it does strike me that that's not maybe the most representative way that this stuff gets used. Often people record LFP in two different regions mm-hmm. and true. they want to look at how correlated those are. And so what do you guys think about whether this really does extend well to the issue of recording from multiple LFP signals? The other thing is not only... Um Sometimes people record LFP in both brain regions or in both networks, if you may, to continue this example. But also, the especially in the living animal, there's no way you can target your electrode to the dendrites and not anything else. So then you're really not getting just the field around the dendrites, but the average around the somas and everything around every fiber going through. So 
is not just going to be the input to those neurons that are nearby, but also the outputs. So this paper points out this specific, the, the fact that where your electrode is matters a lot. Um, and so basically they're claiming that the only time you could expect to really see any high coherence is if you're recording from the spikes of cells in one region, and also uh, you could look at the LFP of a region that that first region projects to, but your electrode has to be near the dendrites, which is the location where the inputs come in and, and hit the cell. Mm-hmm. And so their claim is that in that situation, if the cells in the first area are spiking with some kind of synchrony, then maybe you could see some coherence between those spikes and the LFP, basically because the claim is that mm-hmm. the LFP is just the sum of the inputs to these cells. So right. if the, the spiking is uh, synchronized, then the LFP, which is the sum of kind of these inputs from the first area, will also uh, it will show oscillations and you can find coherence there. But they claim really any other combination of things. If you're recording from cell bodies and cell dendrites in different areas or two different LIPs, like there's just no plausible scenario to get really high coherence from that. But yeah, that's, that is, as far as I'm concerned, when, when I read people's discussions of the study of oscillations, and I mean, Nancy, maybe you can comment on this more directly, because it seems mm-hmm. to me that you're kind of doing something along these lines, uh, you know, recording LFP in multiple brain regions and trying to look at what yeah, you can probe from I'm that. recording, so in our lab, we've been successful recording single units or spikes in one brain region, and then LFPs from anywhere else, like, you know, up to like six brain regions. In my particular case, I'm recording spikes in the prefrontal cortex and then LFPs in two other brain regions, and I'm trying to ask the question, are are the spikes in the PFC being differentially influenced by these two LFPs when I manipulate something or behaviorally, etc.? I don't even see that much. I, I'm curious to know what they consider high coherence. So yeah, I was wondering. If, if you, the, the equation that, the mathematical procedure that uh, Josh was referring to will give you either from anywhere from zero to one coherence of one, one being perfectly identical in phase. Because it's normalized in the definition. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, 0.7, is that high? <laughs> I look at face locking rather than coherence, but maybe they're using the term here coherence as like more the the definition, the not not the mathematical definition, but like the colloquial definition. I don't. It's not extremely high because obviously I'm assaying cells that are not receiving input from from the regions that I'm recording LFPs, and also that these cells are receiving like hundreds of inputs. So I see some face locking, and you can definitely ask if these spikes are significantly modulated by the LFP by looking at circular statistics. So there's ways... So you're, you're looking at the LFP mm-hmm. in the region and you're saying, are the spikes in... Another brain region. Another brain region. That receives anatomical projections. So that's an important... Like so we, you're also going in what seems to me the opposite direction from what this paper is yes, talking about, right? Yes, that you, is true. So do, what, how, do you, how do you guys think about that? And, uh, so, what, we, so here yeah. they kind of have an anatomical model. Right, so it's a little bit of a circular argument, like, well, whatever inputs to the brain region we're recording to the LFP are definitely affecting the output, which is then affecting the spikes over there. Maybe if we had a perfect model and we could, like, only record from the dendrite, then we will see that the high coherence will only be in the scenario that they're describing. But because our LFP is not targeted to the dendrites, we're really getting spikes 
contributing spikes of that brain region, which is the output contributing to the LFP as well. So that's a positive in your case, though. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. definitely. Yeah, that's and so for some people that's a negative because they're trying to study the input to an area or something like that. But it could be helpful if you're actually just trying to get some measure of the overall activity. Overall activity, right. Overall activity. So this paper claims that there's basically, there's just current limitations in what you can record, and I think you would agree with this, Nancy. Like, mm-hmm. if you could just record all of the cells in both areas, you know, that would be lovely. Um, they understand why people use LFP, but, you know, if you really want to say anything strong, you need to be recording from spikes along with LIP, or just have more concrete knowledge about the connectivity, like the actual connectivity, to, to be able to say anything. Like, if you just, if you had no idea the connections between two areas, you just pick two areas at random and try to look at their LFPs and use their LFPs to determine if they're, um, if they're connected, you know, that wouldn't be sufficient because it's too weak of a, a signal, it's too weak of a statement. But if you have a lot of other knowledge surrounding the circuit mm-hmm. that you're studying, then, you know, you can use LFP on top of that to say things. Specifically anatomy. Yeah, so some of some of the core points of this paper are that it, it's important to know in which layer the LFP originated. Uh, so I mean, they, they view that explicitly, and, and my understanding of the work that comes out of uh, Brzezinski's lab is that they actually use depth probes with many electrode contacts on them so that they can try to actually localize the LFP that they're recording and, and try to figure out which layer it's coming from. Right, so that, so that's a, like a special choice that they've made that, that yes, gives them more power. because they're very more. interested in the different layers and, and the sources of these LFPs. And so there these chunks that Josh is describing, they have their electrodes have what we know as high impedance, which means that the signal that's recorded by that electrode is very, very local. The electrodes I use, because we're interested in the sum activity of that brain region, have very low impedance. So then they're really going to go across layers. So it's almost misleading to, to think you guys are recording the same signal. And Absolutely. All of yes. this is called LFP. But it's funny, yeah. Yeah, you're recording something that, I mean, do you kind of have an approximation for how much uh, how much volume you're, you're recording from? Like how, how many neurons you think you're getting in your LFP signal? Um, I will be making it up, really, because I, I don't... Okay, but I you, know you, that you believe it's a large yes, region. Yes, it's definitely large. Whereas here, they, they think that they can localize it to the specific yes. layer. I've never tried to record with chunks and, and observe across electrodes to see just how different it looks. Sure. But there are some kind of... Bigger issues, I think, that we can now start to talk about when we talk about neural oscillations and, and what kinds of things you can extract from them. And something that I think about is that it, it strikes me as extremely difficult to really understand mechanistically what's going on when you record from this stuff, when you record LFP in general. And so here, with this kind of good anatomical model, if you think, hey, I'm recording from a specific region, and I'm, I'm also recording from another brain region... And I, in the first region, I know where my LFP is coming from, or in the second region, I know where my LFP is coming from. Maybe you can you can make some principled hypotheses, but I, I don't know if I believe that there's, I, I, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. open to, to being persuaded, I don't know if I believe there's really that much that you can learn from recording these kind of very gross signals, very, very crude, you know, like When you say that signals. much, you mean mechanistically of how the brain is working? Yeah, I mean, you know, if I wanted to build a model that performed the computation that I think a given brain region is, is performing, what, what could I pull from just oscillations? So right, there, are, there are special cases where you record from a whole bunch of single units, you get lots of spikes, and you also record from, uh, like, some LFP signal, like in the hippocampus, where people have done some interesting things looking at how specific spikes 
mm-hmm. are related to the phase within an oscillation. Right. And I think people with a kind of computational bent are, are sympathetic to those kinds of, uh, of, of approaches. Yeah, but that's really only one example. Yeah, that's an exception, really. kind of. Most yeah. of the studies of oscillations, uh, you, you record at multiple LFPs, and you're really not looking at spikes very much. I mean, right again, mm-hmm. with with exceptions, but and people are looking at kind of coherence between these uh, these different brain regions with respect to the LFPs. Mm-hmm. You yourself are doing this, I, you know. I, I just I want someone to tell me kind of how that could inform models of how the brain is performing the computations, because that's the thing that I think I'm most skeptical of when I when I hear about studies using oscillations. I guess that would require a person that knows about models and about LFPs as well. So. I mean, that's a pretty general question, right? Because, like we said, L- what we call LFP is some very aggregate signal that mm-hmm. will change depending on the properties of the electrode you're using, you know, whether or not you're talking about where the electrode is located, say, within layers of, you know, cortex or something like that. Um, so, I mean, there's, like, multiple specific questions you could ask, right? Like, there are specific hypotheses that exist about areas be get coming in or out of certain types of coherence and how kind of pseudo-mechanistically that could influence things like spiking behavior and so on. And then there's also pragmatic questions, right? Nancy, you kind of alluded to some of the pragmatic benefits of recording, you know, things mm-hmm. like LFP earlier. You could you can ask specific questions like, if I know, if I record this specific signal, so some specific LFP, I use this kind of electrode in this kind of brain area, we could try to figure out how much that can tell us, say, about spiking in that region, for example. Like, that would be kind of a pragmatic thing you could you could do, which is kind of different to what a lot of people talk about when they talk about oscillations. But, like, I don't know, I think you can break your question into kind of many different questions about... There are several kind of things you could think certain LFP signals could help you with pragmatically, just easier ways of getting at whatever... Is this brain region active, yes or no? Things right. like that, yeah, yeah. During this. Versus, like, more Knowing specific. how the brain is working. Well, but going back to the models, I sometimes when I think of LFP, I think of rhythmic activity. And let's just forget for a moment of, like, the going up and down. But, like, I feel like if you are recording LFP, you can see these different frequency activities that are occurring in that brain region. And, and I feel like if you are building a model and you know that this brain region... A is active in these frequencies while the brain region B, which is connected with that one, is active in this other, is acting in these other brain regions, fre- frequencies, sorry. I feel like that could help us understand how the brain is working, that frequency matters. So I feel like that intuition is, is at root for a lot of people who study oscillations, but I think for a lot of modeling people, it's very, e- they, there's a recognition that it's very easy to produce oscillations in, in networks. It's kind of hot. Well, it's is well it? to not produce them. Right, yeah, <laughs> it's kind so, of the default. Yeah, so the, the, there is an interesting thing, okay. right? In theoretical neuroscience, one thing that people have tried to do is to build large populations of neurons and wire them together in ways... And they oscillate naturally? Yeah, wire them together in ways to see like what kinds of regimes of activity and can And there's can plenty work. of like parameter space where they will oscillate just... Do they have preferred frequencies? Yeah there's, oscillated. There's, yeah, there's lots of studies that have been done in this. I don't want to like... Okay. I mean, I don't know. How, how easy is it? Like, just a simple thing. Record LFP uh, in cortex, get the power spectrum. Build me a integrated fire neuron network that Definitely. has the same power spectrum. Is that easy? I don't know if that's easy. 
they're saying that their networks naturally. Yeah, you can get things that also you can prove you to get things that also like like ridiculous right ways that are not brainish at all. So you're saying, yeah, I'm not sure so, how well yeah, it relates I have to that. Well, yeah, there's a sense that there's there's something productive about the oscillations. Oh well, I was going to say that also. If you give, you know, someone who's trying to build a model based on individual neurons, build like a, a computational neural network, uh, and all you give them is the power spectrum, like that's incredibly difficult. There's really nothing to go right. off of there. And so I um, think that's another reason why it's not as clear what role they play, because the relationship to the individual cells is so tenuous, and probably there's many different neural circuits that could create the same yeah, I've actually read a, a couple of reviews that claim that the spikes are a very minimal contrib- contribution to the local field potential. That the majority uh, of of the amplitude of the field comes from subthreshold activity. And most of these networks, do they? I mean, I, I know very little. Do they have subthreshold activity that occurs? So when when people make artificial neural networks that are supposed to be kind of biologically plausible, they usually represent them as having. Yeah, like a voltage that when it accumulates to a certain threshold, the neuron spikes, communicates with its, you know, the, 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 the neuron that it's wired to in the simulation, and then it resets its voltage to a low value, and as it receives inputs okay. from other neurons in the network, its voltage increases again until it spikes again, and so on. And, and that's basically the model for, but, all, for, for some okay. number of neurons. Okay, so then there's there not probably no models taking into account just the currents that are constantly going in well, no, so it's receiving currents from, in, its, from its from the from yeah, the neurons that project to it in, in the simulation the same way roughly you there are people who are trying to model aspects of oscillation and that sort of thing and so you can explicitly make sure that your neural model includes enough details that you feel comfortable that you could say oh i can you know estimate what the lfp in this network would be in this model network yeah i see uh, but going back to josh's point because the local field potential has so many multiple sources and it's unclear what the distribution of those sources are, and if that depends on brain region, which probably does, and depends maybe on, on, on brain state as well, and behavioral state, we're still at the level that LFPs are not going to inform models of the brain. Maybe. I, I mean, I, and I want to be clear that maybe... I, I, Perhaps. I, I mean, if you're recording a small number of channels of LFP, I mean, there are maybe are exceptions. If you have... If you're recording large numbers of LFP signals across many channels, I, I've, I've seen work that, that can do interesting things with that, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to like ubiquitously criticize this. Right? It, it's just it's not clear to me from looking at these kinds of signals, unless you want to build a model that's kind of in terms of these abstract variables. Right? Trying so, to explain the LFP. Exactly. Perhaps. Right. So to, I mean. That's what we think we need, actually. I think uh, people that can model and say, how can this happen? How can these frequencies occur? In terms of computational neuroscientists, I think they think of the building blocks and the circuits they want to build as neurons. And so it would be a very kind of weird shift. And I think maybe part of the disconnect in language comes from the notion that, you know, in order to, to, for a computational neuroscientist who is, who's building, you know, models of, of neurons to build a model that is going to make useful use of, of data that's predominantly kind of LFP oscillation style data, mm-hmm. it would have to model like these kind of abstract variables. That's really, I think that's really interesting though. Like I have to say, I felt very ignorant when I read this because it really made start to me reading these papers and especially the one which we haven't mentioned, which maybe we'll touch on briefly, this other paper about ephoptic coupling or whatever. Um, it made start to me this idea that like, 
you know, if I think of a network of a bunch of, say, a model network, like a simulation of, say, like a bunch of pretty, what I would consider kind of detailed neuron models, right? Like, say, some model of a neuron that actually takes into account membrane, specific membrane currents of various different types and so on, and I link them all up together. I'm kind of thinking, oh, yeah, that's like a real detailed type thing to be studying, and it actually isn't the kind of thing I would be most interested in studying because I want simpler things so I can focus on, like, computations. But if you were studying something like that, I would be thinking that's very detailed. And the fact that neurons are like embedded in this complicated soup, they're all very (laughs) close to each other. Yeah, it's highly conductive. The physical, you know, aspect of the neurons is sometimes lost. I think that's really interesting because like in in a model, they're only touching each other via synapses and you have total control over those synapses, right? Right. And that is really distant from the reality of it. I I do find it kind of interesting. I'm, I'm not sure like... I think it's on the same level as astrocytes and glial cells. Like, we just sort of, like, ignore them. Those yeah. as well have... Most of the cells in the brain are not neurons, right? Or, or right. They, yeah. Yeah. We're very much action potential centered. Yeah. Although, I was, I, there are examples of uh, computational models of neurons, you know, neurons being the unit of the model, that use LFP to constrain facts about them. But the, the problem with that is that you have to, as a modeler, come up with what the LFP is. And so you kind of just take a sampling of the inputs and kind of, you know, filter yeah. it in a way. And say like, oh, okay, that's probably what the LFP is. But without knowing biologically the source of the LFP, that's, that's it's very difficult to try to model it. I mean, you're just making up a definition for yeah, it. Yeah, I actually have to say, when I was thinking about this, I was like, this would, okay, this would be so stupid, like, in some sense, as in people who want to know how the brain computes wouldn't give a shit. But I actually was thinking it would be kind of cool to build like a model of like physics of brain tissue. I mean, people must do this. Like, I don't know. Like, think just actually think about like how homogeneous is the medium, blah blah, all that crap. How much voltage can it conduct or current? People do it, but we just don't care. (laughs) I I I think it's kind of cool, actually. But like, I wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean. Sometimes I think that people have studied this because they do simulations about how far you can record from neurons. It's probably hard. Yeah, not super accurate models. Yeah, it's also used. It doesn't feel like it's computational neuroscience because I think it's people who just want to understand their tools better. It's like, well, we'll just run some simulations to know what we can say about this. It's not you know lumped in with the rest of computational neuroscience where you're really like trying to understand the brain. So one other thing that I wanted to talk about though, because it's related to the points that we've been bringing up with respect to oscillations, is I kind of feel like there's almost a, a bait and switch that goes on. Kind of in oscillations in general, I feel like you say, hey, what's an LFP? And someone can give you a very concrete example in one setting, but then in other experiments, they just kind of don't, they're not as precise. So at the beginning, they start with like a very concrete, very lucid, realistic setting where they, they tell us, here, you can understand what an LFP is, and so let's trust this. But then by the end of the paper, they're really talking about some high-level stuff, and you know, kind of something near the end says that you know, we hope with a full understanding of their tools, neuroscientists will soon be able to decipher the precise mechanisms and roles of oscillations, synchrony, and interregional coordination in carrying out the sophisticated neural oper- operations underlying cognition and behavior. So it's this kind of grandiose thing where oscillations are sort of the causal mechanism. Right? They started by, by kind of asserting that we're using LFPs to record something that we know what it is, it's the inputs to this dendritic network. But then you know, at the end, they've just totally switched, and now they mean, like, something more grandiose by the use of LFP. And I, I, it was a gradual thing in the paper. I think most research articles do that at the end, and they make, like, a big claim, by this type, we're going to cure something. So I, I feel I, like I really this claim at the that... end, in particular, is unrelated to, the, like, 
the way they sold LFP as something that I wanted to get behind as like, this is just a, an indirect mesoscopic measure of dendritic activity and we know which layer it's from. To at the end, Someone we're going to record multiple LFPs and they're causally interacting and cognition is emerging from oscillations. <laughs> like that's the kind of wow, use of oscillations that I'm very the uncomfortable The end of it does end up being more in line with a lot of research that has come before this paper, which does, you know, want to say, I mean, a previous Bujaki paper even hints that, you know, oscillations might explain consciousness. And, yeah, you know, which they, that's the kind that I'm most go. skeptical of because it seems pseudoscientific to start with something very consistent, rigorous, logically well thought through, and then just kind of make a jump somewhere. It's not even clear why oscillations have anything to do with cognition at a high level. I I, mean, there's a bunch of papers of monkey behavior showing that when they're paying attention and behaving well, you have a lot of gamma. Sure, but I mean, it it isn't the the, the way that they talked about LFP at the beginning of the paper when they presented it. It's very different than anything that you would jump to to talk about. Why is there one term for this one? Yeah, that's that's kind of the point. Why are we always talking about LFP? It's it's insane. Like, just to be clear, LFP usually is like you take your signal and you filter it brutally below some frequency threshold. Like, that's like, could be, and we've said this a million times. (laughs) Maybe it's like saying voltage, okay? It's like just like the signal. It's you know, membrane voltage is more like of a neuron. Is more no, no, specific. no. I'm not saying membrane voltage. I'm just saying a voltage. Yeah, yeah. But it's just voltage. But it's like LFP. Given that, you should it should kind of never end up being spoken about as a cohesive item. Sure. You should have to talk about some. The LFP of blah blah. Yeah, I'm recording the broadband signal in the dendrites. Yeah, and then you and then just call it the broadband signal in the dendrites. Mm-hmm. Or I'm recording the low. Yeah, you know, <laughs> low pass low, filter. low pass filtered frequency that it, for like a huge volume of the brain. Yeah, and, much volume, right? yeah. And people kind of pretend and, and seem to think that there's a strong relationship between like recording an LFP and looking at an EEG signal. Mm-hmm. It's not clear to me that we should think of those as mm-hmm. the same kind of thing or expect to see the same kind of information in it. Mm-hmm. But kind of uh, as, as one final push, you know, and I want to hear, hear thoughts on, on all of these points, what is it that determines what kind of models or, or thinking about signals people are comfortable with, right? So why, why is it that some people would feel comfortable looking for information flow or like directed information in these signals and, and expect to learn something from it. Like I'm going to look at one brain region, another brain region, same way that people would in, in mm-hmm. fMRI science, you know, I, they talk about a network of four interacting brain regions and mm-hmm. think that they're mechanistically understanding the brain. Whereas for other neuroscientists, they would say, well, that's not giving me any information. Uh, you know, does anyone have any thoughts on, on why? Yeah, this is, this is a thing that I've always struggled with, with oscillation type things because of I can agree, like, okay, you find these things that correlate with attention or with whatever other behavior, but then I try to envision what's actually happening to the neurons and how Mm -hmm. that's information being processed and passed along in a way that fits in with everything else I believe about neurons and how they function. And then I kind of hit a wall, which is like, oh, wait. Especially this, like, kind of causal loop because people talk about, oh, LFP, you know, if you're in a up or down state with the LFP that'll determine if the cells will be more excited. Well, it's both ways. They say the cells are more excited, and so if they get an input, they'll spike. But at the same time, LFP is supposed to be measuring the input, so you're just saying if they get more inputs, when they get inputs, they'll spike or something It's extremely circular because LFPs are partially contribution. The contribution is like the actual spiking, so... 
Yeah. There's no such thing as an LFP. We should never <laughs> talk about LFP like it's a thing. Well, I, I, I don't just mean this for LFP. I mean, it's a field that whatever electrical yeah, I mean, the, signal you get outside From, from a so. recording tool, there's an LFP. Right? It, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, whatever it's just not helpful like. to just call everything that you pick up with an electrode that isn't like placed intentionally near a cell an LFP. What do you mean by a thing, right? It's like <laughs> kind of somehow you would mean you would have some very specific model in mind of how certain signals arise and you'll be able to predict things about those signals you know yeah, okay so you're saying so you're, I, I, this, yeah. this kind of gets to gets to my, my bigger point which we can almost phrase as a modeling point again i mean if, if you see two brain regions or three brain regions or four brain regions and you treat each of those as having like one variable or maybe two variables that are interacting what does it mean for you to say that you've learned how the brain works by by looking at two variables from different brain regions interacting, or a, I mean a small number of variables from each brain region interacting. Right? I say this brain region influences this brain region, so I know how the brain In works. In this way. No, who say that? No, I mean, well, I, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't mean that like, they would jump to that mm-hmm. extreme conclusion, but there's a sense like I've gained meaningful it. insights about how the brain works by saying that this brain region influences this brain region. And I mean, see that. Very... How far is that from lesioning brain regions and saying, "Look, I learned." I mean, so I would say it's not pretty far. Is that, this is a step forward. <laughs> it's a step forward, but like, it's, it gives it's a you small step. Information and it gives you. It it's a like... step sideways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the I actually have a problem as well. Like um, it is too. It's very easy to find problems with recording these signals, let's call them local field potentials, and, <laughs> and, and feeling like we've learned something about the brain. But even though spikes are very precise and they're a thing because we can say exactly how they happen, I also have a problem with myself recording only 100 neurons and thinking I can actually say this is happening in this brain region when this brain region has thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of cells. So, yeah, so that's problematic. I agree. Too. Yeah, I'm not, so I, there's problems everywhere. There are, yeah, so <laughs> an, an electrophysiologist is going to record what they believe to be a representative sample of the neurons in a brain and brain region and try to infer about what's going on in that brain region based on that sample mm-hmm. that they believe so to be. So can't we infer from the local field potential as well then? Yeah, we can. Yeah, but it's like funny. I mean, I think it's a good point, right? Like people... People got very excited at some point when they realized, oh my god, this one neuron correlates with behavior, right? And they were like, holy shit, that's insane, <laughs> yeah. right? And then this became this yeah. like kind of thing, like the spikes of like single neurons tell you things and so on. And that kind of dominates in a way, this idea of like representation, like the yes. spiking rates of neurons represent things, neurons have receptive fields, how much that neuron is spiking represents something that's happening in the world and so on. And that's lovely and everything. And the same happens with frequencies and oscillations, I think. Yeah. Well, gamma increases when this thing, gamma represents this thing. For me, at least, there's kind of like a satisfaction when I see, uh, you know, this is when a neuron is spiking because I know, okay, that is when it is sending a signal to the neurons that it is connected. Yes, exactly. It's releasing neurotransmitters. Yeah. And yes. so, like, I can at least say, okay, this is communication happening. And maybe yeah. to really understand how the communication happening is what it's doing, you know, you need a lot more cells and more information about connectivity. But, but at least, least I can say, yeah. That's fine. And that's nice, right? And that means that the re- one of the reasons why that's so satisfying is because we have a model in mind. We have a mechanism. We know how a, a cell spiking a bunch when there's a thing moving can influence other cells. Other cells can know about that via the release of neurotransmitters at synapses. So and that's great. And specifically, 
right? It's, it's a sufficient explanation that neurons produce behavior, right? We know that neurons influence muscles directly. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. th- there is, it is very direct, right? Yeah, if we know okay. that neurons are producing some activity... I mean, it's sufficient. It's not sufficient. I mean, it's sufficient for some things, right? It, it's sufficient well, for explaining how a neuron and motor cortex can make a muscle move. But, like, I for think this, get, this gets to what some of these people try to talk about, these oscillations folks, right? There's loads of things that we can't explain. I think a lot of them haven't been framed very coherently, and that's part of the frustration. But the notion is that somehow quick coordination of communication between brain areas will probably be important for cognition, and like maybe oscillations have to do that. Mm-hmm. How can you explain that just with spikes? You probably can, but we don't have models that actually explain that. You know, so it's, right. we don't have sufficient like frameworks and explanations for like a bunch of things, and people are kind of trying to get at them. Yeah. And I think like the spiking thing, you know, it's possible. Like, the gamma coherence, whatever, like, like one simple model might be one region is fluctuating and another region is fluctuating in phase via whatever mechanism. And suppose it's the case that when that's happening, spikes that are being sent from here to here are more likely to make region B spike, right, or something. Then that could be a mechanism by which, if you can modulate the phase difference between the two areas via some other unknown mechanism... It could be a way for co- controlling communication. This is like an idea, right? But like, it, it has millions of holes in it, right? Yeah. But I mean, there, there is there is the possibility. Well, the, they the call this this is a, this idea is a name. It's right, communication through coherence model. Right. This is what they call right. it. And this, I mean, that is at least it's at least a possibility of something analogous to the kind of spike neurotransmitter spike thing, right? But you know, yeah, it's so just so we're so far from. Seeing that actual actually happen, we're far from a mechanism and like a model being able to explain how is that possible. Yeah, and being able to like show it the way we kind of see, we know that spikes fire neurotrans. You can measure all these things: neurotransmitter releases, it increases or decreases the potential of the next. So I I think maybe maybe uh, something that I've kind of been thinking about as you're saying these things, and something that is influenced by the way I was thinking about this before. To me, it's almost as if the reason why studying oscillations as the phenomena is somewhat unsatisfying is because I don't feel like a model that just relied on oscillations would be sufficient to explain the computation I believe the brain to be performing. Yeah, but, but maybe a model that just relies on spikes wouldn't be sufficient. Well, so maybe it wouldn't, but I believe at least that neurons are the kind of largest unit that still is small enough to explain the computation, right? Like a whole brain region is, a lar- is larger than a neuron, but it's not small enough, right? It's, there's too few brain regions for me to believe that just if you describe how the brain regions interact, you can explain the computation. But in terms of neurons, that's the largest unit that if we treat those as the units, we, we, we believe we could build a model that could actually do something. So like artificial neural networks, which are used to perform computations, the unit of those is a neuron or a, neuron, a neuron-like abstraction. We believe that by... Putting a, making a model that's in terms of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of, of neurons, we can actually perform a computation. If we do something, if we build a model that's in terms of abstract variables that correspond to like oscillatory activity in a few brain regions, we can't make that do anything. So as a person who wants to like build kind of models of brains that can perform the task that brains perform, it isn't clear what I get from adding the oscillations. Now, maybe... I think after, it's very open that that might No, no, it might help. So maybe after I have a model in terms of neurons, I can make the model better by adding some notion of so oscillations to it. I think this would it. be a good time to talk about the second paper briefly because it does give some 
idea of what a mechanism of LFP is that could actually influence spiking of cells and then that, you know, brings everything together such mm-hmm. that we would, you know, if the second paper is true, then maybe you would build a, a spiking network and it would be lacking something and LFP would give you that thing that it's lacking. So that paper is called Effaptic Coupling. Of cortical neurons. This paper is by Henry Markram. Um, and so this... this uh, term effaptic is basically referring to this notion of the LFP that surrounds a cell is influencing that cell. So we think of LFP as being some measure of the inputs to re- uh, cells in a region, but also it's you know it's floating around in there with the cells, so it could be influencing the cells itself. And this paper was trying to address that. And so just very briefly, how they go about that is. They have uh, cells in vitro, so in a dish, and they block all of the neurotransmitter signals in these cells so that there's no signal that's coming onto these cells from other cells so that they can control all the signal that's happening. And then they place electrodes in regions around the cells to kind of induce their own LFP that they can control. And then they can measure from inside of the cells if the cell membrane is responding to this external signal that's supposed to be like an LFP. And importantly, they keep the external signal um, around the same magnitude that a a real LFP would be. Because obviously, if you put a lot of, uh, if you stimulate a brain region excessively, you'll of course influence the cells. But the question is, can LFP be influencing the cells? So particularly, they're, they're leaving it at sub-threshold stimulation that will not make the neuron spike. Yeah. And so what they show is that, indeed, the, the membrane potentials of the cells that are near where they're stimulating, uh, they have oscillations that they claim follow the, the LFP that they're creating. And then also, if they stimulate the cells so that they're spiking and then also have this external signal, the spikes will... Uh, become more in line with the phase of the external signal than they would be if there was no external signal there. So they're claiming that this LFP that they've created, which is supposed to be like a real LFP, um, it doesn't change the number of spikes that a cell would have, but it changes their precise timing. And so you could argue that for some encoding of information, precise timing matters. And so the fact that LFP can make groups of neurons have uh, more synchronized spikes could be relevant. So maybe I need effaptic coupling. Maybe I don't need effaptic coupling. But okay. I, we, we, we kind of know we need the neurons. Yeah, and I so yeah. studying the kind of higher level of resolution, I don't know, it's still invasive. It's not clear to me why people do studies that are just in terms of LFP when they could be recording spikes. Because, so maybe this is directly a question that Nancy can help us with. I mean, you know, if you're already doing an invasive study. It's not like you're saying, you these are humans, I'm, I can only record, like, extra cell, outside the skull. I mean, it's still sometimes hard to record spikes, for one thing. Yeah, that's why I was going to, the only reason somebody will record global field potentials are not spikes that means that they have all the hardware that they need to record spikes. It's just that it's it's very difficult to record single units. You, It's much more delicate. So if I, during the surgery, if I accidentally touch with some, I don't know, particle, some dust, if there's some dust on the tip of my electrode, the impedance of the electrode for, for getting single units, because you want the signal to be so, so, so localized, so then you're isolating one cell, 
the impedance is so, so, so high then that anything could disturb it and then you get zero signal to it. Now with the local field potential, the animal, I mean, during the surgery, you could have blood, you could have a lot of things and still you'll get a signal. So it's just simplicity. But that obviously comes with a lot of, I mean, it's simple to get the information, but how can you interpret it if you don't have any single unit activity, which is what we know the mechanism of. But Josh, I think that you're being very close-minded to think that the local field potentials wouldn't add anything to your model. It's possible that well, you say, cannot say, make yeah. it add anything to your model because you don't understand it enough or like there's just no no precedent. So how will you start with that? I think that this paper about the effective coupling is a good example. And it's also kind of related to things that modelers already think of. Like if you, if you model something that you kind of call a rate unit in a model, you might actually think, well... I'm calling this kind of one unit in my model, but in reality it might be like 100 cells and their average output is this rate. Well, maybe those 100 cells are coordinated to have synchronous spiking so that they really give you like a strong output signal that would really drive a downstream cell. Um, you know, they're coordinated that way by the LFP. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case. I just feel like there is a conceptual mechanism that could be worked in if it really is the case that LFP is controlling spike timing. But it might be controlling spike timing might not be controlling it at all because this is not an in vivo experiment right um, and it might be controlling it it also doesn't show that there's a role even even if hypothetically it could yeah no, no, no. but it also and it could be yeah controlling it so subtly that it doesn't really matter it doesn't maybe, matter that those yeah. cells are spiking one maybe, millisecond right right timing matters maybe for some things but not for others yeah so but i still think that there's a framework to incorporate these kinds of things yeah and I, I wasn't saying that to me I, i'm just i'm still skeptical that when you look at studies that look exclusively at LFP kind of signals, that there's there's much that I can do with that. Yeah, it's definitely the case that everything needs to be taken into account. And just like it's hard to interpret the data without some notion of the anatomy and what exactly you're recording, it's hard to build a model based on LFP if you don't know anything about the anatomy of that area or you don't have any single cell information. It's only the papers... Well, but where the people have like really high and rigorous standards that are actually that useful anyway. I feel like if you if, you, if you've honestly recorded from lots of neurons in a given region, uh, it's not clear to me how that data is totally not valid. If you if if you are honestly reporting what you did while those neurons have been recorded, yeah. I feel like there's some use that you could get from it. People can look at your neurons; they know what they're getting, and they can look at the task or the, the paradigm that you're using when recording from those neurons, yeah. and kind of know what those neurons are related to, to some extent. And I mean, maybe this just means I'm thinking too much in a way that's consistent with the way that people think about neuroscience today. You're very dogmatic. Well, yeah, but uh, there's there's a kind of weird alternative dogma around neural oscillations. Well, I don't think it's an alternative. I think it goes together. It's an I think, to be fair, I think for some people it's an alternative. So maybe <laughs> not for you, Nancy, but there are people who kind of really mm. praise oscillations. Like, oh, it's the... Like mesoscale explanation we've, we've all been it. waiting for. It's like, oh, we can't know about all the neurons, but the whole brain is too much, and now we found some middle area that will obviously be helpful. This is always a problem in neuroscience, though. It's like, who are you talking about? Yeah. Are you talking about the crazy people, or are you talking about the like two percent of reasonable people? <laughs> and like within the two percent of reasonable people, most ideas are still maybe valid because nothing is that constrained, right? Yeah. Like it's always like that. It's like a scale-free. 
subject. It could be anything. Anything can be crackpot, and anything (laughs) can be totally relevant. Okay, well, I think I want to thank Nancy for joining us today. Yeah, definitely. It was really outstanding. Josh was a salt. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. Okay, till next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.